Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the State of the Ark podcast. My name is Mike. My name's Kason. Uh, we got some great topics today. Let's jump first into our stories of the week. Um, there were two in particular. It's actually been two weeks since our last podcast, but really only two things stood out to me. <laughs> um, first and foremost, the Alliance Live. Ooh, I didn't add Kason to this one. Hold on. One second. <laughs> Where did I go? I Jason's promise I'm here. here. There he is. Let me put him into the right place. Sorry, everybody. I'll get it figured out in one second. There he is. He's in place. Okay. Now we can continue. You're not centered, though. That's going to bother me. There we go. <laughs> okay. We're right. good. The Alliance Alive. Uh, this is a game that I, I did a, a video on um, back around the time that it was going to be released. I think I released the video the day before it came out. But it was kind of like a first look. Not necessarily a review, but just my thoughts on the demo. Um, and I really liked it. Like, the demo that I played, I would say like the first um, 10 to 15 hours of the game, I thought were really, really exceptional. I didn't end up finishing it just because of how busy I am and stuff like that. It's kind of a long game. But it does a lot of stuff really, really well. In particular, I love its overworld exploration. Uh, the way that it does overworlds, mm. like one of the best I've ever seen in any JRPG. Um, just, it's a really, really cool game. You guys should look into it if you have not heard about it. But before it was a 3DS exclusive game, and now it's being remastered um, for the PlayStation 4, the Switch, and PC, and it's going, going to be released later this year. Um, if you guys, you know, don't know too much about it, the writer of Suikoden 1 and 2 uh, wrote the story for this game. Um, Writer-director of Suikoden 1 and 2, I should say. Um, wrote the story for the Alliance Alive, and um, <clears throat> Hamo Uzu, uh, who is the, um, the composer for uh, Final Fantasy XIII, World of Final Fantasy, a lot oh, of other nice. uh, Final Fantasy project, uh, projects. He is the composer of the music for this game. And the music's actually really excellent in the Alliance Alive. So I'm going to go ahead and just play cool. um, the, what, the, the trailer here. Trailer, yeah. yeah, so you guys can kind of get a, get a look and feel for it. But... Anyways, um, it, it's a really unique RPG. I, I felt like, you know, when I played it, um, you know, I play a lot of JRPGs, <laughs> especially covering, uh, you know, stuff for this channel. Uh -huh. And this one of all the games that came out last year is one that stood out as, as feeling unique to me. Um, it has kind of um, an interesting, like, level progression system for the characters, uh, it was a little difficult to figure out exactly how it works. It can feel a bit random, how you unlock new abilities and things like that. But as always, players pool together. They eventually figure it out. There are guides to it now, so you can kind of know what's going on. But uh, anyways, um, I liked I liked that game. I do plan on finishing it. I, I will probably wait for this remastered edition to come out and maybe start a new file. Um, hmm. Possibly cover it more on the channel later this year, but uh, just be aware of that. If you didn't have a 3DS when I was talking about this, um, 
but you have a Switch or a PlayStation 4 or you game on the PC, you'll have a chance to try it out now. So it looks awesome. Also, this was sent to me uh, on, on um, Discord. This is a game called Towers. Uh, I don't know much about it other than this trailer, but it looks freaking sweet. <laughs> so I'm just going to play it. Uh, it says the following video shows a work in progress. It contains clips from a game produced by a core indie team of six developers over the course of 12 months. Um, actually, Kaysen, I, I, Kaysen, I should send this to you. I found one. I just looked one up on IGN. Towers official game trailer or whatever. Oh, no. I'm looking at Towers prototype trailer. Um, okay, show me. Maybe link. maybe that is the same thing. Hold on. Let me give it to you just in case. Maybe it's like it probably is four the minutes same. long. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Like four minutes long. It's, it's yeah, probably so that's the same it. one. Yeah, it's the same one. So the fact that this was made by a core of six people is insane to me. Um, wow. Graphically, it is one of the most impressive things I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. And and the 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 world seems very imaginative. I mean, really interesting monster designs. Um, the the landscapes are really beautiful yeah. and uh, the characters give me somewhat of like a studio uh, ghibli vibe they wear these masks oh yeah um they're kind of tribalistic he's got like a little glider kind of like um, breath of the wild, of the wild. <laughs> yeah. and it seems to have a really heavy like online multiplayer focus where there's uh. like co-op going on so there's other players there and big giant monsters that like are monster kind of, hunter this is like a mix yeah. of a bunch of the games that I really like. <laughs> I know. It looks awesome. Yeah. Um, the music in the trailer is also very good. I'm not playing the music now. I've got it on mute. But the music, to me, was very impressive, too. So just about on every front that I can see from this trailer, this is looking like it could be a really magnificent title. Of course, uh, you know, this is just a prototype they're wow. showing. Um they still have a long way to go in development, I would think. But something to keep your eye on, for sure. Uh, but, uh, yeah. We'll continue to update you guys on this as more information comes up. But this is something that I'm going to be following. Yeah, this looks, looks really sweet. cool. <laughs> Holy cow. It looks really good. So Towers. There's like some Final Fantasy 15 here. There's like yep. so much there. Like Avatar, the James Cameron's Avatar. Mm-hmm. There's like a lot of really cool stuff all thrown together here. Super impressive. It is very, very, very impressive game. Yeah. It looks Holy awesome. Cow. So, anyways, that is that for the stories of the week. Let's get to our main topic today, which is what makes a good villain? This is something that we were touching on a little bit. We were kind of skirting with this a bit on last our time, last podcast. And said we'd get to it a little bit later. Um, and I've thought about it uh, for the last little while. And um, my thoughts on this are probably not going to be super long, which is okay. You know, short podcast once in a while. But um, what we were talking about specifically last time was kind of like the difference between an archetypal villain that is meant to stand as some kind of metaphor for fear or evil or just some kind of concept or metaphysical idea or something like that sure. versus 
a villain that's meant to be taken more literally as a human being. That's like a like human. His, yeah, exactly. Um, so there's no like one right way to do this. Obviously, <laughs> mm-hmm. there's a lot of different ways, a lot of different portrayals that can be very effective within whatever story you're creating. But um, I, I've, I, as I've thought about it, I've kind of boiled it down. I think to two approaches that I see being really effective in their own right, and one is the I'll just call it because I don't know if there are legit storytelling terms for this or not, but I'll just create my own if there aren't. <laughs> you have the the sympathetic villain, right? The villain that you're meant to go, hmm, that guy has a point. Right. You know, you're not meant to feel like they're totally evil. They make you think a little bit deeper about your binary thinking, a little bit deeper about your own sense of morality. Is this really right or wrong? And in the end, you kind of go, huh, you know, like maybe I don't support the 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 means, but I don't necessarily disagree with um with the the premise of of the dude's motivation or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Then you have just the menacing villain, the the villain that is meant to make you feel afraid in whenever that whenever that person comes on screen. It's like, oh crap, <laughs> this is not good. Oh crap, we're the, the heroes are in danger. Yeah. Get out of there! Holy crap! And and it just creates a sense of fear and intimidation. Um, and both can be in extremely effective, like I said, uh, depending on the story that you're telling. I would say for for genres um, where it's it's supposed to be, well, let's say a horror, for example, right? Like in a horror movie, like you want that villain to be like intensely menacing and intimidating, and very you want to be very afraid of that villain when it comes around, right? Yeah. Um. But in other genres or in another type of story, that, that wouldn't necessarily be the most effective choice. So, um, a few things. A few... Well, before we get into that, I guess, let me pass it to you. Like, what are your thoughts on any of that? <laughs> no, I think that's good. There's kind of the two, but I think there's also sort of like a third, a third villain that would be the kind of villain that... Um, is almost like an accidental villain, like didn't mm. really mean to be a villain, but like like a kid who gets bullied. Actually, I have some pretty good examples of this one, like Gollum in Lord of the Rings or uh, Skull Kid from Majora's Mask. Um, like a character that doesn't, like their philosophy is, I don't know, they became a villain almost by accident. Like they were, you know, they were kind of rejected by their community and then they came across some by chance, some incredibly powerful thing that allowed them to kind of take revenge or, you know, become a little bit of a villain without really having a philosophy, without being the super scary or the the philosophically, I'm doing this for a purpose. But just kind of like, just by pure mm. accident, they just became something by pure human nature also. They just kind of found some power and they just became consumed by it. And um, I think Gollum and Skull Kid are probably pretty good examples of that. Skull, Skull Kid is a really good villain. I didn't actually yeah. think about that this week, but well, that's not, a good one to bring up. It's not until the end. I mean, it's spoilers, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 
This game's about 20 years old, but spoiler alert about uh, Majora's Mask if you haven't played it. Let's wait a second. Uh, at the end, you find out he was kind of just a... He was a bullied kid, and he just happened to come across this really powerful thing and yeah. didn't, like... He ended up using it. He, he causes mischief. He's not, like, an actual villain. He's just a kid trying to have fun. And, you know, like a kid playing with a bunch of ants and he's trying to pick them up and he accidentally kills a bunch and they're like, ah, well, whatever. And that's what Skull Kid is, basically. <laughs> he's not like a real villain any more than a toddler terrorizing ants is a villain, you know? So mm. just kind of a thought there. Yeah, I love Majora's Mask. I will cover yeah. that game at some point on this channel. Game's amazing. But I think um, the accidental villain, though, it's not very, um, it's not very common. I yeah, remember I when I was uh, when I was a kid, I watched. What, was it freaking? Was it like Ghost? But no, it was Honey. I blew up the kid. That's what it was. Honey, I blew up the kid. The sequel, where this huge toddler starts running around New York City and he's just like breaking everything. And it was like so scary. But it's a kid, and finally his mom comes out and is like uh, talking to him. And he and he was playing with the toy cars, which are real cars, but he's huge. And um, he just didn't get what was happening. And he was a villain, but he wasn't really a villain. He's just a little <laughs> misunderstood kid. And finally, yeah. his mom talks to him and he cries. Um, in Toy Story 3, there's a character like that, too. They call him Big Baby. He's the enforcer mm. for the, the purple bear, Lotso. And anyways, by the end, you figure out he's just he's just a kid. He just happens to be big and strong because he's, he's just big. But yeah. he's just like a little kid. He didn't mean to be a villain or anything. But those mm -hmm. villains, I find, it's like, it's like philosophically, they're just not relevant. Archetypally, they just aren't, they're not there. They aren't super like a human type of character, but they're also not like a deep psych philosophical, like the Joker. But they're not, um, you know, Darth Vader. Well, Darth Vader, we found out more about him later. Um, what would be a good uh, Voldemort? They're not like Lord Voldemort, you know? But they're just purely evil. <laughs> yeah, but but they're but they're there, and you know that's something to kind of point out, I guess. Um, let's catch up with some uh, comments here. Uh, Mister Slyke says, "I'm really interested on what they felt about Suikoden Two with the Luca Blight." So I'm still kind of in the middle of my playthrough of Suikoden Two. I've I've now finally gotten past the point where I left off in my first playthrough years ago, and Luca Blight so far is a very effective villain uh, as as just a completely chaotic evil type that's that's meant to be menacing i would class him in the second of the two types Kaysen's kind of created a third with the um the accidental one uh yeah. which i do agree with those can be really interesting too um so if we have the sympathetic the menacing and the accidental uh luca would definitely f fit into the menacing um, where he's he's pretty much just entirely evil. He wants to create as much chaos and suffering and torment and agony as he can. He relishes in it. He's a sadist. Um, and that can be really unsettling and, and very effective when done the right way. And in the scenes in which he's appeared so far in my playthroughs we get into, um, I would say he's one of the better ones I've seen um, on that front. Um, so I like I like Luca Blight a lot as a villain. Um, Lego Dog says I think Shin Megami Tensei has some of my favorite approaches to villains in the series since they're all force of nature. But who is a villain is determined by your alignment since the lines are not drawn by good and evil, but by the ideals and laws of chaos. 
Uh, Shin Megami Tensei seems like a really interesting series. It's one that I would like to play uh, more. I've, I've, I've dabbled with the third game and the fourth game. Um, probably played about 10 hours of each one. Um, so I wish I knew more about it. I wish I could include it in the conversation, but I'm too ignorant on Shin Megami Tensei. But that sounds very interesting. Yeah, that's um, interesting. Velhart says the power of Majora is that it gives power and has the user unleash their negative emotions. Later learned that Majora itself has its own thing, if not attached to a user. Uh, good thing to bring up the, the the mask itself contains like that a, would be the evil. Yeah, yeah, that's the evil part. Skull Kid is the and, victim of and it, and that's right? true of you know also like with Lord of the Rings, Gollum. You know, it's the with ring. The ring. Mm-hmm. that's the real evil thing which is tied to Sauron it's not really Gollum but you know he he still is I would consider him a villain but. okay so uh, I think that well, let's, let's move here next um, whether or not you're going to choose one of a villain within one of those three categories right whether or not you're going to move this direction with it or that direction with it there are I think a couple of key points that are important um for the villain to be effective almost no matter what you choose um and i think the first thing is typically you want the villain to be more powerful than the hero especially at the beginning of the story um you've probably heard the phrase the hero is only as good as the villain before and uh, i would say that's almost always true like the hero is only awesome the hero is only great as long as the counterpart is really, really powerful, really menacing, a great challenge to overcome. If the villain is weak, if the villain uh, isn't very intimidating, or um, if the hero is always more powerful than the villain, then typically the hero doesn't seem to be, doesn't seem to resonate quite as well because I think what people want to see when when they're uh you know enjoying a story is a character that overcomes great um challenges uh you know really really difficult trials passes through a lot of trouble and suffering and overcomes that that's what we like to see we like to see them go to like the absolute bottom and then climb back out of that and and uh, overcome all of the challenges they face. So the greater the challenge that is presented by the villain, usually the more that we will appreciate the struggles of yeah. of the hero. You know what's kind of funny? There's some level of that in real life as well. Oh yeah. Like when you look at um, like being from the United States, when you look back at the the greatest presidents, right? They aren't just the greatest just because they were so great. They're the greatest because they faced the greatest challenges, right? Like Abraham Lincoln or George Washington. You look back and it's like, had they been president at any other time, we would just totally overlook them, right? It's the fact that they were, you know, the president of this time, this great, you know, this great challenge that they had to surmount or this great, um, you know, war that they had to fight or something like that, that, that makes them these great heroes in the past, but that aren't really, you know, probably any like super different from other people, but that's just the way that the story unfolds. That's the way we look at them. Mm. Um, 
Velhart says, I agree. On top of that, the villain doesn't have to be physically more powerful. I think of Superman and Lex Luthor. Superman could easily go kill him and call it a day, but Lex ah. knows how Superman works and knows how to use it against him. Well, that that's actually, interesting. That's, that's the, a good point. <laughs> that's the next point I was going to bring up is that yeah. it does not necessarily have to relate to um, being physically able to kill or overcome or whatever. Right. The villain just needs to have an an advantage some yeah. of some kind over the hero over that the hero. makes the um, hero have to overcome a lot of challenges, right? This kind of reminds me of the movie Unbreakable. <laughs> yes, yes. Samuel actually. Jackson is just mm-hmm. like this broken dude. He's the villain, but he can't do anything in and of himself. He's so like weak, but he's really smart. And in mm. some other ways, he's able to kind of have advantage over the hero for a little while. Um, I'll get into this a little bit more. But uh, two of my favorite villains of all time are ha- uh, Hans Landa from Inglorious Bastards. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh, that guy. Oof. And Shigur from No Shigur. Country for Old Men. Yeah. And in both cases, neither of them are in the in the typical sense. Like these powerful physical specimens that just like overpower everyone they come across it's not about that in hans landa's case it's about position it's about his level of authority yeah as an as a nazi officer and you almost never know what that character knows (laughs) yeah and that's he's got the best poker face yeah i i'll get into that in a minute too well Um, shigur also like he's just blank faced half the time and you 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 know what he's capable of but you don't know what he's thinking no idea what he's thinking right yeah we'll get into that in a minute but that's another level of advantage right when when you're in a situation and you do not know what your enemy is thinking you don't know what they're going to do you're at a disadvantage especially if they know what you're thinking what you're going to do you feel very very um weak and exposed and vulnerable and so when a villain is a step ahead of you mm-hmm. even having that level of an advantage and just feeling like this guy is just smarter than me he knows more than me he's he's got a plan he's trapping me like even even just that kind of level of advantage can make the 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 villain much more intimidating and um make the hero's obstacles seem that much greater right so that's uh, the first principle making the villain more powerful than the hero is is really important i'd say it's probably the most important of of anything you can do the next one is uh motivation um and, and making that motivation personal for for the villain right so you you can have I actually, I'll, I'll use Middle Earth as two examples for this, right? Mm. In The Lord of the Rings, we have really no insight whatsoever into Sauron's personal motivation. Right. It is entirely off screen. We see none of it. We never even, like, I don't, he has no lines of dialogue or anything like that. We only really mm. see him in, like, one scene, I think. Well, there's the pre when, when, the prelude or the pre we see him like in physical form in in the in the pre what is it yeah what's what the, word? the word <laughs> the, the sequence that happens before 
The prologue. The prologue, um, that's the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we see him in physical form there, but then only really the eye of Sauron whenever uh, Frodo puts on the ring or yeah. in the Palantir you see it too. Um, when Sauron's talking to him. I guess he does have a line. Build me an army worthy of Mordor. Build me an army. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's his one line. Yep. Anyways, my point is that we we don't have any insight whatsoever into that character. And for that reason, I think I would admit, though I love Lord of the Rings, that he's not like the greatest villain ever. Um, I would say that in Lord of the Rings, it, the, the threat is more like nature. Like, it, it's more like overcoming the fact that they've got to climb over this mountain or go through this dark cave. Or, and, of course, there are the armies and the orcs and balrogs and monsters that they come across along the way. Like, all of that. But it feels more like a man versus nature type of thing. Because really it's about the internal struggle of Frodo to resist the ring of the yeah, other the characters. Ring, yeah. To resist that temptation. It's more of them fighting against their own desires to use the ring than it is about fighting against Sauron as a villain, as a character. Um, and I'll get more into man versus nature in a minute, because there was somebody last week who asked about that. But um, but Sauron is not a very interesting villain, I would say, for that reason. Because, we just I mean, there doesn't seem to be a... Um, a relatable motivation... Because Sauron is a Maiar, he's a higher being. However, in the Silmarillion, which we're reading right now in book club, I think they did a much, or that he did a much better job at humanizing, so to speak, uh, Melkor slash Morgoth, mm. who gets lots more screen time, lots more um, opportunity to sort of relay his personal feelings and why he's humiliated and why yeah. he seeks revenge and what he wanted in the beginning and was denied. And the motivation is much clearer on Melkor's part. And to me makes him a far more interesting villain than Sauron ever was. Um, as just a guy who followed... Um, you know, there was a really good line in the Silmarillion that says... Sauron was only less evil than Melkor in that for a time he served another and not himself or something <laughs> like that, right? Like, nice. That's he, pretty good. That's basically the only insight into Sauron we ever get mm. <laughs> is that the dude's just really evil, okay? <laughs> <laughs> and, like, I love that line. I think that line is really poignant, uh, profound, really well written. But, like... Uh, I don't know, like that's really all there is to him. Whereas Melkor, he was denied by Varda before the music. Um, he was jealous of, well, envious of the secret fire within Iluvatar, wanted mm -hmm. to be able to create beings with free will, but was denied that, was jealous of the other Valar and the things that they were making, and just kind of devolved from a being with like the greatest potential and the greatest power of anyone beyond except for Iluvatar into this just degenerate like who 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 set all the power out of himself into his armies into yeah. everything surrounding him and weakened himself to the point where he just hid in you know his his dungeon or in his uh, fortress 
and could barely really like do anything and lived with the pain of the burning of the Silmarils in his hand and yeah. the weight of that on him and he basically just like he lost all of his power <laughs> pretty much yeah. in in the attempt to destroy so I really liked him a lot more that because you you get a lot more of that personal motivation um uh, another uh well I was going to avoid talking about the Dark Knight because anytime that you like look at discussions, because I was doing this throughout the week, looking at yeah. discussions about villains online, everyone brings it back to the Dark Knight's Joker. And I was like, I, I, wanna, I wanted to try and avoid it, but there are some good points to be made with it. Um, and I guess he's talked about that much for a reason. So, But that villain as well as um john doe from seven have you seen seven case oh the seven he's committing all the sins yeah i know that yeah so i've seen that it's been a while <laughs> that that villain and the joker i think have kind of like a similar arc archetype if you mm. want to call it that i guess where their motivation is just to prove to the world that their ideology uh is correct that they're going to prove that what they believe is right and right. that you know they're going to create all this chaos and all these heinous acts but the point of it is not to destroy the city or to you know or humanity or anything like that but more or less to prove a point about humanity right it's like you see everyone's just as ugly on the inside as i say they are and and so you know the joker there's the famous line from the movie where he says, some men just want to watch the world burn. Right. And, and a lot of people associate that as the Joker's just crazy. He just wants to destroy everything, watch it all go down. But I don't think that that's necessarily true of the character. What he really wants is to prove that when pushed over the brink, when really put under stress, the, the natural human tendency is going to be selfish, destructive. Um, they will eat each other, I think he says, or something like that. Um, and so his entire plot is set up to like create a scenario where the people will turn on each other and they will sink into chaos. And they see that everyone's really just as bad as, as, as I am on the inside. They just need to be pushed a little bit and like this, this facade of civilization uh, will crumble. Um, and that's that is the uh, the thematic opposite of uh, Bruce Wayne or Batman's the uh, ideology, right? Mm. Which is that is a strict like sense of law and order, and that people are inherently good, and you know that they. So that's the third point, right? So we have a personal motivation for the the villain, and then we we want to see them taking the thematically opposite. Um, either ideology or moral position from the hero. Hmm. Um, so then it becomes like a battle of the ideologies yeah. themselves, as opposed to just uh, who's stronger, this guy or that guy. Yeah, exactly. And Who so you work a, a, a theme and a message into yeah. your story and your characters are working to sort of like describe or lay out the argument for the theme that you're presenting. And they're going to battle against each other, not just, you know, fighting, but they are also with what they believe hmm. is is right or whatever. Um, let's see. I haven't been reading 
Oh, uh, I can read a here. couple. Are there any, any so Riker's things? Beard says, I think great villains all do the same thing. They invoke emotional responses in the reader. If that villain can't offend the morality of the reader just a little bit, then the reader isn't going to care much one way or the other about them. Bonus points if the villain has a stance that may be rationally correct, but morally unjust. Mm. I think it's a very good um, uh, good thought right there. Lego Dog says, well, you could see Sauron as an analogy for the nature of evil itself. That's true. It's entirely possible. Velhart says, I remember playing Quantum Break in what made me ups- and what made me upset with the game, besides the fact it has Netflix episodes in between, is not only did they let you choose what the protagonist does, but it also lets you choose what the antagonist does. It takes away from the drama or consequences of my actions. Very interesting. Mm. Uh, that is interesting. It's kind of a strange huh. uh, choice. Remember, Tolkien was Catholic, and a lot of it shows in writing. That's true. He, he does take yep. a lot of archetypal stuff in in his yep. in his writings. Chris his book, is new his here. book is is biblical. It's biblical. The Silmarillion is biblical, dude. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Velhart, I never watched Seven again after the gluttony scene. Okay. Um, oh, that that is that is a crazy scene. Yeah. Yeah. Lego Dog says the line I love in Dark Knight is when he speaks to Batman and says, This is what happens when an unstoppable force meets an immovable object. Yeah. That's like the theory of an atomic bomb, basically. (laughs) Of, you know, splitting an atom. Like atoms can't be split. But what if you put something that can't be stopped and it hits something that can't be split? Well, freaking blows everything up. Um, I feel like we will be doing this forever. And then Joker takes an amoral, nihilistic approach to philosophy. That's absolutely true. Yeah, so in 7, um, I guess, spoilers, I'll be really quick about it. And they're not intense spoilers, but I mean, it kind of is. Um, so give me an, like a minute or whatever and then come back. So go away if you haven't seen it. Go watch it, though. It's a great movie. Yeah, it's good. It's um, older. It's good enough. So... You know, the entire idea was taking the seven deadly sins, finding an example of each. And this guy tortures and kills these people. But the whole point is to sort of, like, get these cops to capture him so he can, like, put his final killing on display with one of the cops. One of the cops represents, I think it's, uh, wait, what are they? Greed. uh, Envy. Gluttony. uh, Lust. Yeah, greed, gluttony. I just need a list in front of me. <laughs> I'm remembering the characters in Seven Full Metal Alchemist. Sins. The 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 homunculi in Full Metal Alchemist, they all represent okay. one of them. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, sloth. envy, and pride. So envy. wrath. Wrath is the final one that he wants to uh that he wants to like put on display with one of the main cops. Anyways, the way that it's all pulled together and, and this is I think another um interesting point for both seven and the dark knight um is that the villain wins in both cases like you think about the end of the dark knight it doesn't feel like totally tragic at the end it's like oh but but the entire system is sustained on a lie that's the only way that that they can like maintain order in the city so joker was essentially right (laughs) joker was right on in two ways though there was that but also joker was right he got Batman to break his one rule. Yep. Batman's rule, he never kills anybody. And like, even though it was to save someone else, he got Batman to kill him, basically. And, and uh, they took Harvey Dent and transformed him into a villain. You know, like this was like the 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 
paragon, the symbol of like actual yeah. justice and and good. And he became, and yeah. So the Joker basically won the entire He did film. everything except for the boats blowing up. He did everything only he wanted that. to. <laughs> that was the only thing where he didn't quite get it to go the way right. he wanted. But, but ultimately, <clears throat> the system would have completely fallen apart had they known what happened, what really happened with Harvey Dent. Yep. And um, anyways, so having your villain win can be really effective too. Um, and in seven, the villain wins. Mm. So it, it's, it's especially when you're having a, like the first type of villain that I was talking about, the one that's sympathetic, the one that you go, you know, that guy might have a point um, where you understand deeply their personal motivation, their ideology, their thoughts, their reason for doing what they're doing. If you can have them win, uh, even if the the even like you know the Joker is captured, put in prison, whatever, so they don't win in the sense that they get everything they wanted, but they win in just the overall sense. Their their ideas win in the end. That can make your audience really think about the theme and can be a really effective tool. That that villain can be a really effective tool in delivering the message of the story. Um, so those would be some of the guiding principles that I would put behind writing a villain of that type, a villain that is meant to be a little bit more sympathetic. Uh, I haven't seen the, the, the last Avengers movie, but uh, Thanos is one that's from what yeah. I've heard is supposed to fit into this type. It's kind of weird though, because they, they spent the first few Avengers making him not that. <laughs> and then that was basically people's complaint was like, Oh, the villains are all basic villains. How come that none of them are very deep? I'm like, okay. So then Thanos becomes this deep villain, but it's like kind of, uh, but it's, it's the, it's, it's the same thing. It's like, you understand the villains ideas. You go, you know, he has a point though. I don't like the way he's trying to make it happen. Right. And he wins. So like, that can be really effective. And we have three examples of that right here. And and all three yep. of these are considered some of the best villains ever created in film. The Joker from The Dark Knight, John Doe from Seven, and Thanos from The Avengers. And all three of them follow that kind of uh, formula. So you want to create an effective villain that people can relate to, that people can understand, but still oppose, still understand that they're wrong. Um, that's a good way to go about it. Now, the reason I think that that resonates with a lot of people is because it's more true to real life. Um, real life villains rarely think of themselves as evil. No. Um, they can have a really twisted sense of logic that uh, that where that is based on truth. And that's what's so uncomfortable about it, I think. Again, we we tend to want to be binary in the way that we think. We that's just natural. We want to separate things into categories. Yeah. It's kind of how societies can function. <laughs> yeah. Is by it's, people agreeing on what the categories are and do this, don't do this. It's it's pretty binary. Life is a lot easier when you can quickly and easily identify things and place them categorically in your mind into is this thing dangerous or not is this thing yes. something i should pursue or not and it's just but 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 one yes yes or no zero one like <laughs> it's you like know, a computer like, yeah it's fine good bad like should i do should i not do it's it just makes life easier when you can when your brain can just register 
your response as quickly as possible. And binary thinking is the way to categorize that. So things become really uncomfortable when you are forced to take something out of the, the category or box you've placed it and go, well, where should I put it? <laughs> it doesn't mm-hmm. belong here or here. So what do I do with this? Yeah. And all of a sudden you really have to start like racing and thinking about that and going, wait, wait, my whole like system of thinking is wrong on this. Right. And this happens a lot. Uh, I I've seen with, um, social commentary and political commentary. Uh, you know, when people are talking about real world events, horrible things that happen, you see, um, a lot of people racing to categorize what happened by following the the categories they've set up underneath their ideology and saying this belongs in this box see here's why blah 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 right. and 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 then this you know the other side will say it doesn't belong in this box it belongs in this box and this is why and they they only follow the evidence that supports their category their ideology their way of thinking about it <clears throat> and they discard the things that uh that that make it more uncomfortable to think about and I've seen this a lot um, recently. I mean, it, it's it's gotten to a point where I, I I I have a hard time watching anyone talk about politics <laughs> because I see that process happening in the minds of people. I see them choosing willfully to not look at certain things and only focus on other things that support their ideology, so that they can categorize and easily sort of like make their choices on what they feel about things rather than really examining something which is much more uncomfortable and much more difficult it takes a critical approach and it's uncomfortable yeah like when you see um i don't know like uh just a horrible event whether it's a terrorist act or or something like that and and we come to understand in the investigation what the what the morals of the person were, why they were driven to do what they did, what the motivations were. And you start looking at what they're saying and you go, that's not actually incorrect. Like the person's reason for being mad is not totally wrong. Like they have a point that they are making, but somewhere their rage completely and possibly mental illness <laughs> oh in a lot of cases yeah. mental illness twists their logic in such a way to where they arrive at a conclusion of how to resolve the problem that is just so off base and just so wildly wildly wrong but you you can't just pass it off and and, and not look at the the problem that created <laughs> uh the person's uh anger in the first place and and those are problems that need to be addressed and often i think too often we pass over those issues because they're uncomfortable and say nope categorize as on or off binary wrong or right good or evil that's easier and and so we we completely dismiss i think a lot of the underlying issues that create problems like this and we don't address them because we're we're too prideful in the sense that we anyways i've gone off on a total rant on this but i think this is why (laughs) these types of villains are really popular especially right now and why they are effective because 
it, it does make you go like, ah, oh, like, I don't know what to do with this. I'm uncomfortable with it. And it challenges you to think about it on a different level. And it can be a more interesting story when you have a villain like that. All um, right. I've got a anything? few more. Okay, go for it comments here so Chrisena says in the most hardcore of archetypal stories the evil always triumphs in the end but with the small seed of hope growing out of the ashes or at least as far as i can see um that's common i mean i think about like harry potter like the end of harry potter and it's like mm. the, the you know voldemort didn't win really but it's a pretty hopeless situation. Basically, I don't know, a yeah. lot of stuff got destroyed. <laughs> and I remember at the very end of that movie just being like, holy crap, like what what in the world? Like the school is just a mess now. But um, you know, it's like, well, they'll rebuild now. And that's kind of how um, you know, a lot of a lot of stories kind of, you know, end in a way where it's like, yeah, everything's destroyed, but let's let's start picking up the pieces, let's start rebuilding now. So uh, Riker's Riker's beard is bringing up anti-heroes. Yeah, um, this is something I wanted to talk about. What are you guys' opinions on anti-hero, the anti-hero trend over the last decade, where the protagonist of the story is actually the villain, the Sopranos, Breaking Bad, etc. Right. The kind of character that you are supposed to be emotionally, uh, you're supposed to emotionally sympathize with, but be morally disgusted by. Yeah. Yep. It, it's kind of the same thing on the reverse side. It's like. It's a it's a good way, a good exercise in breaking this binary mentality and thinking about things on a little bit. Like, where do we draw the lines? Like, where should we draw the lines? Right. Um, you know, you have like the hard lines of the law, right? But there, but then you present a situation that goes like, well, if let's say two people broke the same law, but one person did it for uh malicious reasons and the other person did it for the survival of his family or sure, some other yeah. reason and it's like well do they have the same degree of guilt do we give them the same penalty because the same law was broken right. or do we consider the the motivation or the um the intent behind the act and does that have weight as well i mean there's so much and that's why gray area is so uncomfortable because it's like it's hard to make those choices. You have to really think hard about them to get them right. And even if you think you've gotten it right, another person will have a variance of disagreement with you. And so I think that uh, late 90s going into the 2000s, television started exploring a lot of stories like that. And it's become wildly popular because... It is challenging. It's it's it, it makes your mind work. It's like, huh, like I do feel for this horrible person they're presenting to me mm -hmm. in the story. How is this can't be right? I don't want them to win, really, do I? Like why do I feel this way? <laughs> right. It's cuz you get to know them. This is something that happens like this is something that does happen in real life as well. You see uh politically <clears throat> groups of people that um are typically like not held in high esteem. I don't know exactly how to put this. Um, like society functions a certain way. And then society has a certain view on certain people, right? Mm -hmm. These people should this or that, right? And then somehow people within that society get to know these people. Um, be it, This is something that's happened with like, like, like gay people. Gay people had a hard time coming out of the closet for a long time. Um, I still think they do. 
but it's it's becoming a little bit easier. But the idea is there was this idea among society that gay people were this certain way. And it was like, well, I, yeah. okay, I may have these feelings, but I'm not going to let anybody know about them. Um, but then as gay people begin to come out, all of a sudden people start meeting gay people. People start mm. getting their friends. They realized one of their friends for a long time was gay. And they realized that their ideas on what gay people are or were were completely wrong. And yeah. now that they actually get to know somebody personally on a personal level, it's like, okay, well, maybe this whole portion of society shouldn't like, like these things shouldn't be illegal anymore the way that they were, or maybe certain things or certain laws need to change in order to, you know, make way. But it, it's only by getting to know personally people who are different from you that you're able to kind of change your outlook on society. So in the case of like breaking bad or something like that, it's like, all meth dealers are bad people, right? But all of a sudden we get to know one and he was a high school chemistry teacher and he was such a such a nice guy and he was only doing this because he thought he was going to die or something. Or I, I, I'm pretty sure that's the premise. Anyways, I haven't really seen Breaking Bad. I saw the first episode though. And so he starts to sell meth so he can have some more money. And it's like, okay, well, that's not so bad, right? Mm. <laughs> like you can do that a little bit. I mean, I don't know how much into detail they go about the people he sells meth to. And how a lot of them probably overdose and die. <laughs> sure. But, you know, you at least look at him and you can sympathize with him. And all of a sudden it's like, well, maybe it's not so black and white the way that I used to think. I, I think you made a really great, really great point there. Um, and that is that the... Riker's beard, I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you may, No, but the point that you made is that, like... That is exactly the, what the solution, sh I, I would say, idealistically should be, is that when you, if you have, um, I guess, an idea, like you have your box in which you categorize a group of people, right? Generally, it's because, and, and you look at them in a very negative light, generally, yeah. it's because you, you don't really know them that well. You exactly. just see, like, yeah. certain parts of it, and you go... Well, I, those things I've categorized my whole life in the wrong box. So it's easier for me to just place them all over there. Right. Whereas if you really take the time to go learn about meat, like get to know those people directly, you start to understand the underlying reasons why these real problems are happening and i'm not talking about gay people anymore by the way i'm talking about more general on a more general sense right gay people was like a perceived villain that was not there's real. nothing mike's wrong talking about that. real villains <laughs> i'm talking about real villains okay yeah <laughs> people who have committed heinous acts yeah it's it's very hard to deal with the fact and wrestle with the fact that when you can just put evil on the face of what someone has done and just put them in the box over there and just pass it off. It, it's just so much easier. But when you actually look at them and you get to know them and you go like, man, that sucks. That's yeah. This person had potential. This person could have done great things. This person was not stupid. This person had real legitimate fears that he, he allowed or she allowed that fear to overcome them. It's like on really, it's, it's, it's painful to see like the, the, the fact that that person needed help and didn't have access to it, didn't have the right people in place to like talk them off the ledge, so to speak, to, to like help them 
in the gaps of their logic and and you know present them with a better way and all of a sudden but but it's it again and this is especially disgusting to me is the way that uh news outlets that have certain uh political biases will they all only <laughs> examine the facts that support yeah. their binary ideology and they yeah. will only report it in that way and they won't take a close examination and they, and they don't even try to reach across or try to understand the underlying problems and that's why i think at least in my own case villains like the ones we're talking about that have this level of uh thematic moral opposition to the main character but that that motivation is personal and clearly defined and has kernels of truth in its uh in the passion for that villain to be thinking that way are really really interesting because they help us learn how to break out of this way of thinking that i think uh makes it easy to vilify those who are opposed to us to pass them off as being strictly evil and then justifies our vehemence our um what would eventually lead to violence against that group we have to stop them we have to they're they're evil they're that that mm-hmm. will lead to bad things whereas when you actually get to know them when you get to meet them when you take them out of the box and you examine everything you go you know this person's not that much different from me they just we just need to talk about it we just need to <laughs> we need to compromise compromise right yeah. now i'm not trying to again that's an idealistic situation there are going to be times when you can't compromise or a person refuses to compromise and you know it's not that that talking about things is going to be the answer always obviously that's not true and don't mistake me i i know that the world is not that way right <laughs> but i think we are too quick to vilify and there's a lot more strife a lot more problems than there needs to be because people are unwilling to try to understand an opposing an opposing point of view yeah. and so things escalate and become a lot worse than they need to be because we do that so that's why I like that type of villain. Um, so we've got Banana Slamma saying, I love me a well-done anti-hero, compelling from the get-go. Tony Soprano especially is great. I think it's a trend because it definitely didn't happen too often in film and TV for a large majority of its life. The anti-hero thing, I understand that. Skipping Riker's beard. Um Christina says, I wonder if it could have something to do with the audience getting the chance to indulge their forbidden desires. Ooh, that's very interesting. Counting on that, counting on that they are in their worst moments, they wanted to be a jerk who can quip at all the stupid people in the world and be so smart they could get away with it, like Dr. House. That was an interesting show. Or getting hidden revenge on the people who wronged you, like in House of Cards. With an anti-hero, they get to identify and revel in those feelings. Oof. I think you hit on something mm-hmm. there, but ooh, that's not something people like to think about. Yeah, it's 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 disturbing. It's it's it is. It's it's unsettling. It's hard to wrestle well, with. In fact, and Sourdough Mouse makes a comment on that. It says, I couldn't agree more. Not to be too dramatic, but I think what you're getting at is why pictures of Hitler's softer side are so disturbing. Oh, totally. <sighs> Because um, anything that makes Hitler seem like a, a human, like a person, 
we 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 don't want to look at him as a person. We want to nope. believe that he was something other than a person because if he was a person, like picture Hitler as a baby. Mm-hmm. Like holy cow. That's kind of freaky because there's a, a billion babies in the world right now that you're telling me that any one of them could potentially grow up to be like that guy? Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes. Yes. <laughs> Humans <laughs> are capable of doing crazy things and and you better believe that about yourself otherwise you know you're you're in trouble you know you better understand your own potential to do evil so that you can check it and try to control it there was i can't remember the name of the actor i feel really bad about it now Mm -hmm. but um dang it i really wish i could remember anyways it was something i saw a while ago but an actor was saying um he had never seen a a true portrayal of hitler in film because the the Oof. one rule that that you generally should not break as an actor is that you should not judge your character. Right. You should not morally judge You've your character. You've got to be in their shoes, yeah. You have to learn to believe in what they believed is right. And you have to learn how to see the world as they did and and that can be uncomfortable for oh figures my like that. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. And and we want to portray them as 100% evil and they there was nothing good about them they were monsters they were something other than human that's how we yeah. want to look at them but that isn't the reality and so when you do learn some of as sourdough is saying here the softer side of the of the man it's like that's very unsettling stuff very so well. anyways let's move past the sympathetic villain and into the menacing villain right okay. now this can be just as effective um, for different reasons. <laughs> but um, I would say villains like Sauron were meant to be just a strictly menacing villain. When this villain comes yeah. on the screen, it's like, oh, crap. Now, in Sauron's case, I don't know that I ever truly felt that way. Um, I was For me, it was much more, again, that story is much more about man versus nature and the fact that it's man versus himself, man yeah. versus... Uh, the inner evil, potential for evil, like we're talking about, right? Because the, mm-hmm. the ring brings that out of you. That's its power. Um, but villains like Hans uh, Landa from Inglorious Bastards or Shigur from No Country for Old Men, um, Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs, these are villains that you don't really ever feel sympathetic for. You're not supposed to at all. They are just completely like forces of nature almost in themselves. It's just like these guys come around and it's like, oh, you feel a lot of fear. You feel a great amount of intimidation. And the one key to this, I feel, because there's almost no action in these movies <laughs> that I'm talking about. And Glorious Bastards has lots and lots of talking. The tension is built up in the, uh, the dialogue between the characters. The characters talk and the scene just like, builds tension that is a hundred times more gripping to me than any action scene I've ever seen in my life. Uh, the opening scene of Inglorious Bastards, where yeah. Hans Landa goes to the Frenchman's house yep. looking for Jews that he is sheltering there and hiding. That scene is a super long opening scene. There's all, There's basically no action in it, and it is extremely intense you are on the edge of your seat and it's all created with dialogue uh in in uh, no country for old men there's a similar scene 
inside of like a a, a gas station uh, rest stop. Uh, between the man behind the counter and Shigur. There's this scene of tension just builds up. You have no idea what's going to happen. And there's no action in the scene. It's just dialogue back and forth. Um, Silence of the Lambs. You have, uh, I forget her name, the detective talking to Hannibal Lecter behind... He, he's in jail. He's in, He's behind bars. But their conversations are just so tense. And like his way of talking about it. And, and I, I've... As I think about this type of villain, there's one key that makes that true for all three of them. And it is that we do not see into the mind of the villain. We don't know what they know. We don't know what their intent is. We don't know what they're going to do. The element of the unknown, which is very frightening inherently in, in humans, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the, we fear what we do not know. Yep. This is why... When we see the monster at the end of the horror movie, it's never as scary as what we imagined it was because we think the worst. When we get that rush of adrenaline and that, 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 uh, the anxiety builds inside of us, we imagine the worst happening. And, and what is the worst is different depending on who we're looking at. Kaysen's worst case scenario is not the same as mine. So if we can get everyone in the room to imagine the worst case scenario, they're all going to be at tippy top height of their fear. But as soon as I show you what my worst case scenario is as the director or the storyteller, everyone else is going to go, well, that that wasn't my worst case scenario. So that's not as scary as what I was thinking it was going to be. Right. Yeah. So in, in these types of villains, you want the audience to have no clue what they know, what they're going to do, what their intent is, uh, what their plan is, it, all of that is unknown. So that you're just, you're sitting there going, you're sweating because you're thinking like, is he going to do this? Is he going to do this? And you're imagining all the ways that this could unravel in the worst possible way. Um, but, and we never reveal that. We never reveal that. We, you know, Hannibal Lecter escaping the result of it but if we cannot know all the specifics behind how they went about it or what the plan was or what they knew, as, as much as you can keep that subtle or not revealed, the more menacing, intimidating, scary that villain will be because we just think, oh, they're smarter than me. They're, they're always going to be a step ahead. They know what I know. <laughs> they're reading my mind. They know everything. What am I going to do? Right? It creates yeah. all this tension. <clears throat> um, and so those, uh, those three examples, I think, are some of my favorites of that type. Um, the scene in the, in, the, in the rest stop with Shigeru flips the coin. But again, see, what, what guides all these is they still have motivation. They still have um, even morals that guide them, right? It's not that it's not that those things don't exist, like we were talking about the other villains. It's just that they are more obscure. We just don't see them clearly. They're not totally revealed. But mm-hmm. Shigur, as demented as the guy is, as quick to kill, uh, murder, like do horrible things, he's still guided by this twisted sense of fate that he has. That, like, this quarter traveled 22 years to get to this moment. And it's going to decide whether or not you live or die. Call it heads or tails. 
and the guy's avoiding it. I don't know what I stand to win. Yeah. So like, you stand to win everything. Call it. And it's just like, oh my gosh, like what's going to happen? He flips the coin. He's like, all right, heads then. He flips it. Mm. There you go. Keep the quarter. You get to live. Right? Like, Shigur is, is, he's guided by principle. He's not totally chaotic. He's not totally, right. um, what do you call it? Uh, where there's like no, like a society that has no laws. Anarchy? Yeah, it's not it's not total anarchy with the character. He right. has a guiding set of principles. Yeah. They're just really twisted and we don't know exactly what they are. <laughs> right, because we don't know and that's the <clears throat> that's the darkness. That's the the not seeing the monster at the end of the film. That's yeah. um because you, you don't actually get to see It's funny cuz Shigur <laughs> like that haircut, like the the, yeah, hair dude. Got, <laughs> the way he dresses, just his his typical nonchalant just non-caring attitude, I guess, where he's just kind of there. And it's like, you, you don't necessarily see this great evil person, but you, you, you kind of get glimpses as he's doing these things, but it's like, it doesn't look to you like, like a monster. So you don't actually get to see the monster necessarily. You, you just, you still get to picture in his mind, like what's going on, I guess. And, and it's, it's, it's a lot scarier, even in that sense. Same thing with uh, Hans Landa. You've got, this very well kept, <laughs> like mm-hmm. perfectly well dressed and very very formal looking soldier, and it's like, what is he capable of? And you you learn what he's capable of, but you don't see it necessarily immediately. And and it's like, it, were he to actually look like this disheveled image that we would have of somebody who was going to do what that guy does, um, it wouldn't be as scary. But because he looks so proper, then all of a sudden it's like. Your, your eyes are clouded. You can't see the monster uh, necessarily the way you thought you'd be able to. Yeah. Um, th- another scene from uh, No Country for Old Men, just to demonstrate this again, we have a uh, Woody Harrelson's character in the movie. Yeah. Um, and he, he basically walks into his like hotel room and Sugar's there and he sits down. And again, there's just this drawn out long scene where yeah. you, you kind of know the inevitable. But you don't because there have been other examples where he doesn't kill. Yeah. So like, what's gonna what's gonna make him kill and what's gonna make him not kill? We do we just don't exactly know. But pretty much you know. <laughs> yeah. But you don't know when. You'd have no idea when it's gonna happen, and it's dragged out and dragged out and dragged out. And when when he finally shoots the gun, even though it's pointed at him the whole scene, even though you know, the whole time it's coming. It still surprises you when it happens. And there's yeah. this this element of the unknown within menacing characters that I think is very necessary for them to feel really intimidating to create that sense of fear. Um, Sourdough Mouse is saying, Hannibal Lecter was great in Silence of the Lambs, just this incomprehensible evil. Mm. Uh, before I move on to the next part of what he's going to say, I want to say, first of all, that but Hannibal Lecter was not entirely evil. There were certain parts of his character Kind of like what you brought up with um, Breaking Bad, you know, the high school chemistry teacher. I mean, he enjoyed culture. He enjoyed Mm. music. He was intelligent. He was very good as, I think he was a surgeon or something like that. Um, He, and in some of the, I think, well, in Silence of the Lambs, but also some of the later films, he actually helps the investigation. He has all this potential for good because he's very intelligent. He can think like these people. And However, there's just that 
that element to him that you don't understand. It's the part of him that you can't comprehend that makes him so scary because that's that leads to this in this um, inevitability almost that something's going to happen. You just don't know what. But the second part of what he says here, when they tried to make him more pitiable and understandable in Hannibal Rising, I think they lost something special in the character. And that, that I agree with. That's showing the monster to the audience rather than letting them imagine the worst, right? Um, and this kind of leads back to our original point about the first type of villain. When you can categorize them over here, you can be really afraid <laughs> mm-hmm. because you don't know. It's, it's the element of the unknown that makes them so scary. When you take them out of the box and you, you, you see them um, more close up and you understand them better, they're not as scary anymore because the unknown is eliminated. And you go, huh, I, I understand where you're coming from. They turned Hannibal Lecter from the scary villain, the vilified, evil, incomprehensible, and they made him comprehensible and all of a sudden he didn't seem as scary anymore. See, this mm. is the whole point. Do you want your villain to not be scary in the end? You want people to go and think about their own morals, or do you want them to just be freaking scared? <laughs> it, yeah. That's kind of that's kind of the choice that you have here as the storyteller, and neither one is a bad decision. It just depends on the the goal, the end goal for the story, for the message, for the theme of the of the story, right? Yeah. Um, Banana Slamma says that's why Ted Bundy surprised people. He was yeah. so normal and even attractive for one might believe a serial killer should look like. And when you listen to him talk, I mean, it can be really uncomfortable. And yeah. it's like, I don't know how. I mean, it's the twisted logic. There's a step in between dude has a legitimate problem that is pitiable, that is understandable and relatable. We've been there. We've felt the same feelings. It can be really painful. It can make you filled with rage. It can, but taking it from "I feel this way" to "I'm now I'm going to act in such a despicable way," that the 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 gap in logic that leads to that being a justifiable reaction to the problem is where the human psychology gets really complicated and really interesting. Well, I'll I'll call it fascinating rather than interesting. Sure. It's not a good type of interesting in the sense. Uh, anyways, you guys know what I mean. But, um, but those types of villains are most menacing when we don't really understand what they know or what they think or what they're going to do. The unknown of it. And as soon as you get to know them, they become a little bit more relatable and harder to swallow, I guess. So, yeah, there we go. Anything else that you want to add to that? or uh, Not necessarily. I think that uh, I think we did that pretty good, actually. Um, anybody in the comments have any th- other questions related to this you want to hit us up with before we move on? Uh, go ahead and do that. Um, we have just one community story today. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's not, um, not anybody's work from the community. No one sent me anything for that, but just a question from Patreon. So we'll cover that last. But if anybody has anything else they want to add, let us know. Lego Dog commented. One of my favorite thought experiments for myself is to enter the shoes of the final boss of Xenoblade Chronicles. It's really interesting, actually, seeing the perspective of someone from that type of power. And it kind of makes you understand why he does the things he does. Um, Alex... uh, 
Mamedes. Delita is a very complex villain, too. We never know what he is up to until the church scene. Uh, Delita and um, Ramza are a really great example of uh, uh, characters that are created from the opposing thematic sort of like morality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Delita's essentially willing to do whatever it takes to reach the ends. Ends justify the means. Where Rams is never going to compromise his honor, his uh, his sense of morality, and will find another way to accomplish his goals. Right. So those those two heroes slash antihero in one sense <laughs> um, fit really well into that, and that's why, that's why that story is so good for me. Mm. Um, Metal Gear, the Metal Gear games have a lot of this too. Metal Gear two and three both come to mind as uh, Riker's beard is alluding to. Yeah. Um, so, okay. Let's move into our last okay. question. This one comes from Christopher Kowalchuk on uh, Patreon. Now, Kaysen, you did say that you might know I this person. I don't remember the last name of a roommate I had in college. <laughs> but... It might be Christopher Kowalchuk. I'm just saying. Um, anyways, it was a last name that sounded very similar to that. Uh, let me know, Christopher, if I know you. <laughs> anyways. Okay. Uh, here's the question. What's your typical work schedule like in regard to the podcast slash channel? I'm curious to know how you balance this creative endeavor with the other aspects of your life. Um. It's not easy. (laughs) It's it's not easy. Um, Well, you have more, I think, like um, obligations, responsibilities than I have. So, yeah, I do. Um, And I don't know. That's a good. uh, It's a good question. How do I do it? (laughs) Um, Not maybe as well as I could do it, but um, having just certain days that I know this day I'm doing this thing. Basically every evening of my week is filled with something, um, whether it's recreational, whether I'm going to go, you know, visit family or whether, you know, my wife and I are going to go out for the night or something like that. Um, I basically every single day. So Sundays is I'm doing my podcast. Tuesdays we do the book club. Um, the only times that I have available for, um, you know, working on this kind of thing other than the the podcast and book club that we do uh, would be either Monday evening or Wednesday evening. And so I kind of just have to make sure that I have those times available, I guess. Yeah. Um, but making sure that you have a structured schedule, because if you just think, hey, I'll do it whenever I whenever I feel like it, you'll kind of never really yep. end up doing it because especially for some of the videos we put on our main channel on the YouTube channel, um, some of them are big and they're complicated and they take a lot of time and they take a big long script. And sometimes it's easy to just avoid it and be like, yeah, I'll do that later. Right. Cause it's just <laughs> such a big thing. Yeah. It's hard to know how to tackle, but when you've got your time s- slots set out and it's like two hours this day, two hours this day, then it's like, okay, you sit down and it's like, well, I'll do what I can right now instead of, thinking that I could ever have time to finish the whole thing all at once. Yeah. Um, For those of you who know the Myers-Briggs personality types, um, (laughs) the four letters, ISTP, ENFJ, um, 
look into that if you haven't. It's actually really interesting to take the tests and like learn more about yourself. Yeah. But the, the letters correspond in such a way. You have I and E, which is introvert, extrovert. Um, you have sensing and intuitive. So whether you're a sensing type or an intuitive type, uh, thinking and feeling are the third. And then the, the last is judging and I think it's perceiving or something like that. Judging and Anyways, perceiving, yeah. So you have the, those kind of like four elements to the way that you think the, the, your, your method for reaching your, your conclusions, how you sort of arrive at making decision making, that sort of thing. Um, Lego Doc says, I, I'm INFJ. So I am ISTP. Um, and so what that means for me, obviously being introverted, being sensing type, being a thinking type, but the last letter has a lot to do with the way that you structure your life. Whether you are a go with the flow type of person or whether you really need to like regiment your life <laughs> in order to mm-hmm. function. I need a plan. I need to know what I'm doing and when I'm doing it at what time I'm doing it. I need to like have meal plans. I need to like keep a calendar. I need to like schedule I am not a J. (laughs) (laughs) I really wish I was more that way. It would make my life a lot easier if it was. I feel Mm. like I would be a million times more effective if I was a J. I aspire to be more like a J, but I just am not that way. I am a P. Now, what's nice about being P is that you can more easily go off script and you feel more comfortable with problem solving on the spot. Um, A lot of J types, they really struggle if something goes off schedule. We're supposed to be doing this right now. And they they freak out. Yeah. And it's like, I can't handle it. What are we going to do now? And a P type is like, hey, man, everything's cool. We'll just do this. (laughs) So that element of my personality, I'm glad that I have that. Um, especially in, in like filmmaking, a lot of things would go wrong. I mean, everything always, it almost yeah. never went according to the schedule. I know our sets <laughs> were a mess sometimes. People would not show up or we yeah. wouldn't have the costumes done on time or this would go wrong or that would go wrong. And that is literally like the rule of thumb in filmmaking. Everyone knows who's done it for any amount of time that you could have the greatest plan ever. And it is good to plan. It's good to have storyboards. It's good to have a plan in place, but it's not going to go that way. The weather's going to be bad. Uh, You're going to have rain when you should have sunshine. It's going to ruin your shot. You're going to have to come back on a different day. It's going to throw everything out of whack. You're going to have to figure out how you're going to pay your people on time. And so being able to take things as they come and go off script and, you know, get things done in, in a way to where you feel comfortable when, when things are not going according to plan is a really nice skill to have. Here's where it really sucks, though, is in personal time management. <laughs> um, because with a project like um, my retrospectives, they are enormous projects. I can't tell you. I mean, the average retrospective I make is a 200 to sometimes three to 400 hour process. Um, It is a lot of time and energy that goes into making those videos. It is intense research. Well, depends on the game. Some games have more 
stuff to look into. They have more interviews. Final Fantasy games have a lot more attention put on them, so there's way more interviews to go through and way more information on them than, say, I don't know, something like Terranigma, which was very small, right? So it varies, but the point still stands that there's a lot of reading, a lot of research, a lot of uh, effort put into the writing of it, and tons of time put into the editing um, my recording process is long. My editing process on the audio recordings is long. And so what Kaysen is getting at is that you look at the totality of the work required for that and you go, oh, that sucks. I'm not going to get started on that today. I know. It's like, <laughs> it's so big. You could just, you could always just do it tomorrow and you wouldn't be that far off schedule. Yep. Because you're going to make such chips in the progress of it. It's just a little bit at a time, right? Yeah. Um, so... Yes, you you really do need to set a schedule for yourself and, and be committed to that schedule and really say, I am dedicating this time to yeah. this and stick to it. Otherwise, you will not find that balance. I have been feeling lately like my life balance is um, really atrociously bad. <laughs> oh. um, I Because, one, I haven't really I, I try to be more of a go with the flow type of person i try to live my life that way but it makes it so that i don't start things when i should and i get behind on them and then i feel pressured like okay this thing's got to take precedence now and i put all my attention into that thing and then other things fall off the wagon so that when right. i when i complete that thing it's okay that thing's done and instead of starting on the next phase of that project let's call it videos for the channel i then put my entire focus onto what i've been getting behind on at work that week and i the completely focus on that and i get uh, say, yeah. okay that's done awesome that feels good now i'm behind on this thing crap now i gotta like switch over here and i'm just like, constantly like behind even though i'm more or less always getting things done but i could get all of them done much more efficiently and consistently if i would just stick to a schedule so scheduling, being more of a J-type, is really, really important for that reason. But um, I think you also, and, and I don't know Christopher in particular, don't know his personality, but I, I can might. speak, <laughs> Kaysen might. I might know his personality. Um, just sticking to kind of, you know, I can only really count for myself. Um, I What I tend to do when I feel like um, a certain thing isn't going quite the way that I want, when I feel like, um, this isn't being as successful as I'd like it to be, my typical reaction is to, let's take up three, four, five more projects related to that thing and just do more. <laughs> That is generally what my mind goes to. Well, let's just work harder and more and do more things, and then that thing will succeed. And that's not uh, always the right answer. Right. Um, a lot of times you need to scale back and focus more and be more consistent with the one thing that uh, you can do a little better. And so, you know, I find myself uh, in a place where I'm creating videos for the channel. I'm doing a book club for the channel weekly. I'm doing a podcast for the channel weekly. Um, I'm doing streams for the channel weekly. You know, it's just you get like a pile of a handful of things that are all related to resonant arc. And then at work, I have a similar pile. And then in personal life relationships, you have a similar pile. And 
personal aspirations and goals like the novel I'm writing. You have a similar pile. All these things start piling up and you just lose your mind. You're like, I can't take it. And you just like turn your brain off and you start ignoring stuff and then you feel bad about that. And so anyways, this is why my personality type is terrible at this. But uh, one thing I would recommend and something I'm actually heavily considering is just really cutting back, trying not to do quite so much mm. and just really focus on one or two things maybe three at most <laughs> that you really want in life and saying, I have this time set aside for this and this time set aside for this. And I'm going to do that. And I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to get freaked out because it's not going quite as well as I wanted. I need to do more or whatever. Just stick to it, stick to it, see it through, make, um, small, um, adjustments along the way that are smart you know, obviously like look at the data look at what's working and what's not and make small adjustments but don't try to take on more than you don't bite off more than you can chew mm. that'll just make it worse um so my answer to your question is uh i don't balance things very well so i can't give you the best advice on that other than what i think would work i'm going to try it and see how I'll, I'll report back <laughs> Um, but my typical work schedule is, uh, I work, um, most of the day at my full-time job. And then in the evenings, for the most part, I'm, I'm working on, uh, stuff for the channel. Um, and so I kind of go back and forth between personal relationships and focusing more on those and then focusing more on the channel stuff. So some weeks it'll be like, I'm just hammering away. I'm like all in on making video for the channel. And then one week it's like, oh, he disappeared. What happened to that guy? <laughs> He's supposed to be doing streams and working on this next video. What happened? Right. So I'm going to get more consistent on that and I'll report back to you, Christopher. So, all right. All right. Uh, Banana Slam says, how's the novel progressing? It's progressing um, quite well. I'm, it's one of those things where I, I, the end is so near and yet so far away, <laughs> right? Because I've been working on this thing forever. And, um, I, you know, as an, as an artist, it's never done to you. Like you always see something wrong with it and you always see something you can fix. But, um, in terms of like, uh, how far is it to being complete? Like a, a total, com like the book actually being done. Um, I'm like 85, 90% of the way there. So it's, it's really close. I just need to finish it and not continually edit pre-existing chapters over and over and over. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, anyways, that's it for this week. Thanks, everybody. You guys are beasts. Thanks for following and supporting the channel. Um, my Terranigma video is going to be ready next week. It should be uploaded on uh, probably later in the week, maybe th Thursday, something like that. But... Um, Basically, it's just a matter of finding the right video clips and putting them in place. That's kind of a, the point of that. Everything else is done. It's just grabbing the video clip, putting it in place. Grabbing the video clip, putting it in place. Finding the right one, putting it in the right place. Um, it's about 25 minutes long, and I have, I think, about five minutes of it completely done in terms of the video side of it. So um, two, three more days, and it should be done. All right. So look forward to that. Till then... You guys have a great rest of your weekend. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Peace out.